Hello and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 40th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Let's reflect on that for just a minute. 40 episodes. 40 freaking episodes. Wow. 2020 was our first full calendar year of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Admittedly, I don't think any of us on the NCSEA or our Squeaky Clean team could have imagined the year we had in store for us at the beginning of 2020. We had big, bold, ambitious plans to host events throughout the state, including live recordings of the podcast, along with visiting clean energy influencers across the Southeast to interview them in person. And then boom, all that came to a crashing halt back in March with the onslaught of the pandemic. Right in the midst of that, Our team was even in the middle of hosting numerous tours across the state with legislators out at solar farms when everything changed. But we didn't let that stop us from advancing the mission of clean energy. In fact, it somehow led to a busier and more productive year. Since then, we've charged forward with the podcast hosting our interviews virtually, which really opened the doors for us to bring in friends of clean energy from throughout the region and country. On the events side of things, NCSEA also transitioned our annual policy conference to a multi-part webinar series hosted over the course of six months. Throughout the series, we focused on a variety of topics in clean energy from finance to policy and even market trends. We had close to 40 speakers and over a thousand unique attendees. So we figured there was no better way to recap the clean energy happenings of 2020 than through the voices of nearly 40 subject matter experts we had on the line for our Making Energy Work webinar series. In today's episode, we'll go on a virtual clean energy journey hosted by yours truly, where we'll pipe in the soothing sounds of our Making Energy Work speakers to tell us more about what's happening in the clean energy space. All right, so let's get into it. Clean energy. Clean energy. Stop on the clean energy train. This topic really came to light in North Carolina with the establishment of the Clean Energy Plan under Executive Order 80. As a quick reminder, the Clean Energy Plan established the goals of reducing electric power sector greenhouse gas emissions by 70% below 2005 levels by 2030 and attaining carbon neutrality by 2050. It also called for long-term energy affordability and price stability for North Carolina's residents and businesses by modernizing regulatory and planning processes. With these goals, the plan kicked off two stakeholder processes, including the B1 group, which focused on utility business model reform. That stakeholder group actually just wrapped up with their final report expected to be delivered by the end of the year. Simultaneously, headlines were made earlier this year when news broke that Duke Energy had been in discussions with Southern Company and other electric utilities around creating what is being referred to as the Southeast Energy Exchange Market, a voluntary 15-minute energy wholesale market. At the same time, our friends down in South Carolina passed H4940, 
a bill creating a state committee to explore the possibility of joining a regional transmission organization, or RTO. Similar legislation has been introduced in North Carolina, but is yet to pass. So with all that momentum, NCSEA hosted a webinar on this very topic back in June, featuring Jeff St. John of Green Tech Media, Hannah Polakov of Advanced Energy Economy, Amanda Ormond of Western Grid Group, and Josh Brooks of Rocky Mountain Institute. Jeff St. John, senior editor over at Green Tech Media, kicked off the webinar by providing an overview of market structures across the United States. As most of our listeners probably know, electricity market regulations and structures can get fairly complicated and varies widely across the United States, so some of this context provided by our new friend Jeff will be helpful in teeing up the conversation. In the 1990s, uh, FERC uh, issued orders to open transmission networks to more competition, which led to FERC's Order 2000 in 1999, creating the Regional Transmission Organizations, or RTOs, or Independent System Operators, ISOs, which are, of course, the big seven interstate bulk power system operators that now serve electricity to, or you know, you know, manage the transmission networks that bring electricity to roughly two-thirds of U.S. electricity customers. Um, in North Carolina, obviously, this is uh, uh, PJM, which is the largest um, in terms of customer size, is, is probably the most pertinent. Um, and one interesting note when it comes to distributed energy that I wanted to share from Wood McKenzie Power and Renewables, which is that uh, you know, there's a fairly significant amount of distributed energy resources now serving in these markets, um, and plenty of future opportunities under some pending orders that are meant to integrate energy storage first and then distributed energy resources second into uh, wholesale interstate markets. Um, then, of course, you know, kind of concurrent with this whole ISO-RTO expansion, we had the uh, move to uh, deregulate or create competitive energy markets on a state-by-state -state basis across the U.S. And I'm sure you all are familiar with the varying degrees of uh, success in that. I guess the obvious kind of poster child for DREG is Texas with its complete separation of generation from transmission distribution from retail energy. Um, here in California, we have a very different experience with the botched regulatory regime that led to the 2001 energy crisis, the Enron debacle, and the first bankruptcy of Pacific Gas and Electric. Um, in any case, uh, we do have 24 states now with some kind of deregulated market structure. And, and for the most part, outside of Texas, I think it's fair to say that the general trend has been large industrial commercial customers do have some uh, degree of autonomy and ability to uh, obtain retail electric service. But for the most part, incumbent utilities have retained the majority of residential customers. And as Jeff would go on to mention, North Carolina's leadership in solar installations really slowed down after the passage of HB 589, which changed the interpretation of PURPA, lowering the threshold for qualified facilities in our state from 5 megawatts down to 1 megawatt, while also shortening the length of PPAs. These factors have really made it difficult for North Carolina to continue to move forward and achieve some of the carbon goals established under the Clean Energy Plan, which have led to the conversations taking place in the B1 stakeholder processes as mentioned before. So we are also joined on the webinar by Josh Brooks of Rocky Mountain Institute, who filled us in on the current status of the conversations taking place within that B1 stakeholder process. The Clean Energy Plan identified regulatory incentives, uh, integration of distributed generation, transparent and efficient regulatory processes, and uh, holistic resource planning as all ripe for consideration. Uh, 
the clean energy plan is pretty extensive. If you if you haven't read it, there are many recommendations um, there that that I really won't get into. Um, what's relevant for for our purposes here today is this B one recommendation, which is as follows: launch a North Carolina energy process with representatives from key stakeholder groups to design policies that align regulatory incentives and processes with 21st century public policy goals, customer expectations, utility needs, and te technology innovation. So that is what birthed this NERP process, we say affectionately. So to carry forward this recommendation, Rocky Mountain Institute and RAP are facilitating a targeted process to work with the North Carolina community to evaluate and develop necessary energy reforms. So the objectives here are to build expertise and trust among the North Carolina energy stakeholders, um, examine alternatives to the traditional regulatory model, and, and then ultimately produce specific policy proposals that um, the state can work to implement. So prior to workshop one, we, we were fairly aware that we'd want to cover performance-based regulation, legislation, and wholesale market transactions. Um, as you'd imagine, though, each workshop informs what we need to cover later and what's relevant to stakeholders. So we've now solidified our schedule for the rest of the year. Later this month, we are covering retirement of uneconomic assets. Next up is uh, competitive procurement, policy development, and then two, uh, two workshops on policy development. And then finally, in November, we want to conclude this process with a series of recommendations to the state. So as Josh mentioned, this group will be delivering their final recommendations in a report published here shortly. And as a quick teaser for our listeners, stay tuned for a future episode where we'll dive into some of the details of that final report from the B1 stakeholder group. Stop. Metering. Earlier this year, we saw a big fight ensue at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, challenging the legal standing of the critical policy that has really helped to ensure the growth and viability of rooftop solar across many parts of the country. To dive in and tell you a little bit more about this petition at FERC from the New England Ratepayers Association, we had Thad Coley, Senior Regional Director and Regulatory Counsel at Boat Solar, join us on another Making Energy Work webinar in June. This group, the New England Ratepayer Association, uh, based out of Massachusetts and operating in New Hampshire, uh, brought a challenge at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission saying that uh, FERC has jurisdiction over what happens when a rooftop customer, rooftop solar customer, exports their energy to the grid, that that becomes then a federal jurisdictional matter, not state. So to start, let's uh, just do a little bit of a uh, very high level nutshell of legal um, setup of, of how energy is regulated in this country. So first, FERC has jurisdiction, exclusive jurisdiction over wholesale sales. Those are sales for resale uh, that occur in interstate commerce across state lines. Uh, so, so states, on the other hand, have exclusive jurisdiction over retail sales. And net metering has traditionally been considered a retail practice. You know, you account for injections of power to the grid uh, by offsetting what you have Im imported from the grid over a monthly billing period. Um, FERC had taken up this issue as a legal matter in 1998 when a utility in Iowa called MidAmerican brought it to FERC and actually asked FERC to enforce PERPA to say that PERPA preempted this state net metering policy. 
uh, FERC considered it and decided that, well, this process of netting is actually a retail practice. States have jurisdiction. States can decide what that netting period is. And uh, to the extent there is not excess uh, at the end of whatever period the states define, um, there is no preemption problem. There have been over about 430 cases uh, where net metering has been at issue. And, and this is since, I think, 2013. This is courtesy of our friends at EQ Research that pulled this number for us. Uh, well, since all those cases, you think that a, a utilities or Edison uh, Electric Institute might decide to uh, take this FERC challenge and, and do a do a one-off and be done with it forever. Well, no utility had really brought a challenge uh, to the Mid-American decision, which was uh, ultimately issued in 2001, and FERC had reaffirmed it in 2009. So it was really treated as settled law. Well, this didn't stop NERA taking advantage of a situation where I think everyone is uh, rightfully focused on other more immediate issues uh, in response to COVID and a lot of the, the crisis it's created, economic disruption it's created. They filed on April 14th. Uh, there was an extension requested uh, that was granted, but only for 30 days, not for the 90 days originally sought. Uh, and parties, and I would say, you know, we had at least 100, I would think 100 interveners, uh, and way more than that in terms of public comment. Uh, we help, we work with Solar United Neighbors and some others to aggregate comments. Other groups did the same, and there were over uh, you know, 50,000 comments that were submitted and uh, very robust uh, legal arguments brought by a number of parties. So back at that time, we didn't know where the commission was going to fall on the issue. But fortunately, we now know that FERC rejected the plea from NERA and ruled that net metering is in fact a state issue and should not be regulated by FERC themselves a big win for clean energy and solar energy across the country. Well, the fight didn't stop at FERC. It also ended up right here in our backyard. Lauren Bowen of the Southern Environmental Law Center joined us on the same webinar to outline challenges to net metering at the state level in South Carolina. As you'll hear, recently passed legislation in the state required the revisitation of net metering policy leading to future changes for rooftop customers in South Carolina. Uh, South Carolina, I mentioned a lot of folks are surprised by this, but has the most net metering customers of all the states that we're covering with over 20,000 uh, estimated as of early this year. And the original net metering program has been in place since 2007, order of the South Carolina Public Service Commission, but it really didn't take off until uh, 2015 following a big renewable energy a uh, bill passed by the General Assembly in 2014, it's commonly known as Act 236. That act of the, the General Assembly raised the net metering threshold in South Carolina from 0.2% of um, utilities peak demand or peak load to uh, 2%. And then that has been recently lifted again and just completely removed in 2019 with the Energy Freedom Act um, passed by the General Assembly this past year. And the Energy Freedom Act, uh, we well, and I'll just say quickly um, that the investor and utilities in the state, which is what these um, provisions primarily refer to, had either hit the 2% or were fast approaching it at that time, um, in large part due to the programs, not just the net metering program uh, reinforced in the 2014 legislation, but also some of the related programs that I'll mention in just a moment. So we really, the, the General Assembly was 
sort of under the, the time pressure of hitting that 2% um, to really lift the caps or raise them or to do something to um, keep the industry alive in South Carolina and to keep up with the demand from South Carolinians for net metering. So in addition to eliminating the net metering cap, the Energy Freedom Act also directed a proceeding to review net metering for South Carolina and to adopt any new tariffs, new net metering tariffs by June 2021. And so um, some stakeholder meetings have already been underway this year. Uh, there's some proceedings that have been open before the commission and this um, consideration of any new net metering tariffs will uh, happen this year and on into the first half of next year so that any new net metering tariffs would be adopted by middle of next year. So I bet you're asking yourself, South Carolina, how is this relevant to NCSEA's work in North Carolina? Well, it just so happens that as part of HB 589 passed in 2017, our legislator also required North Carolina to revisit net metering. Therefore, Given Duke's large presence in South Carolina, we expected whatever transpired in South Carolina to come across the border up here in North Carolina. So on that note, back in September, NCSEA, along with our partners at Sunrun, Vote Solar, and the Southern Environmental Law Center, reached a settlement agreement with Duke for a new program called Solar Choice Net Metering. The policy looks and feels similar to traditional net metering, with the potential for solar customers to actually come out ahead financially. A more detailed breakdown of that settlement can be found on NCSEA's website, energync.org. So next up, we're waiting on the South Carolina Public Services Commission to approve this settlement. And then, stay tuned for when the North Carolina Utilities Commission takes up this issue in the near future. And next stop on the Clean Energy Line is creative financing for low and moderate income consumers. This topic is one that honestly doesn't receive the attention it deserves. As we look to build out our clean energy economy, consumers that feel the heaviest impact from high energy burdens are the ones that need to benefit the most from it. Oftentimes, these individuals and communities are neglected from the conversations and are the last to be able to take advantage of clean energy technologies and policies. We are fortunate enough to be joined back in August by Holmes Hummel of Clean Energy Works to talk about some of the most innovative programs offered by utilities across the country designed to help disadvantaged communities benefit from energy efficiency and clean energy technologies. Tariffed on-bill investment is a practice that utilities have been able to introduce in conversation with their regulators. Their utility regulators are economic regulators that are assigned the solemn responsibility of assuring that the terms of service offered are cost-based, non-discriminatory, just, reasonable, and fair. In, in most cases, utility regulators exercise that responsibility by evaluating the utilities' investments that are spread across, for example, the expanse of an entire state. And all of the costs of the system are then spread across all of the users of that system. The innovation of an on-bill investment under tariffed terms, also using the jargon tariffed on-bill investment, is that the utility regulators can also recognize as just, reasonable, and fair a site-specific investment with site-specific cost recovery. The utility is drawing low-cost capital out of the competitive capital markets and deploying it in ways that capitalize cost-effective upgrades at sites that they serve. The utility is able to recover its costs for those cost-effective upgrades by attaching to the bill a charge that is less than the estimated savings resulting from that improvement. 
America's consumers have already made it clear after years and years of consumer surveys from the Federal Reserve Board that 40% of Americans cannot withstand a $400 emergency. But those of us in the clean energy field know that we're talking about $4,000, $10,000 improvements for energy efficiency, building electrification, the potential for an EV charger. What about on-site solar? Once you start to realize that the personal lines of consumer credit are not actually one of the renewable energy resources that we can rely on, we have to find another way to draw capital into the system. And this has been demonstrated in multiple states as working well for energy efficiency and the applications are expanding. Some of you on this call will be not only familiar with loan products for capitalizing upgrades at a customer site, but you will also know that there are on-bill loan programs and that most people are disqualified from their loan opportunities by three simple questions. What is your income? What is your credit score? And do you own this place? And without being able to answer all three of those questions to the satisfaction of a federal financial regulatory system that requires credit underwriting to assure that the loans are made on responsible terms, those customers not able to answer those questions without some sort of assistance, financial assistance, funding assistance, or another kind of credit enhancement or subsidy, will not be able to participate in a program that requires them to take on a personal financial debt obligation. So what you see on the screen gives you a quick side-by-side -side of how a utility can make a site-specific investment on different terms because it's a different instrument, even if it accomplishes ultimately some of the very same goals. Further, we are joined by Susha Macemore, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Environment and State Energy Director of the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality, to talk a little bit more about the areas of the Clean Energy Plan, along with the general work of DEQ that are geared towards low and moderate income communities in the state. You may recall in October 2019, we released the Clean Energy Plan after a nine month stakeholder process. Uh, the key takeaways uh, for those of you who may not be familiar is we, we basically through a public process uh, identified a a change in the thinking and a vision of the future for the electricity sector. Uh, in some, it asks for establishing a 21st century energy system that is clean, affordable, reliable, and equitable. So in the, in the clean energy plan, the recommendations varied a lot. Um, you may be able to see that in accessing uh, clean energy, enabling customers to choose their own energy resources, um, we identify the need for a property assessed clean energy programs, um, pay as you save program, which you heard already. Uh, we also identify greater access to community solar uh, options when for those residents that are unable to put rooftop solar. Uh, addressing equitable ac access and energy affordability contain three major recommendation areas. And I'll reemphasize the importance of the work highlighted by Holmes and Sushma by mentioning that in 2020, close to 1.3 million residential utility accounts in North Carolina were at risk of being shut off due to overdue bills associated with the coronavirus pandemic. That is a huge portion of our population feeling the impacts of a high energy burden, exacerbated by the financial hardships of COVID-19. So it's critical that we all take into consideration those struggling most during these hard times when crafting new programs or policies within the clean energy ecosystem. Next up. 
So moving forward, back in September, NCSEA hosted another Making Energy Work webinar with our friends over at Conservatives for Clean Energy, where they outlined the results of their annual energy poll. Each year, CCE conducts a poll with nearly 600 registered voters across the state to get their take on the energy market as a whole. In the poll, Conservatives for Clean Energy address topics related to fossil fuels, clean energy, market choice and competition, and climate change. To tell us a little bit more, I'm going to bring in Paul Shoemaker with Capital Communications. Paul is one of the leading political strategists here in North Carolina, helping numerous legislators win election and re-election at the state and federal level, including most recent clean energy ally, Senator Tom Tillis. Okay, now get into some of the key findings and uh, looking at how you develop this. And this is as much for those who are responsible for going into the legislature for the lobbying teams. And you're looking at how you develop this out. And also, as you want to look at how you want to message around uh, any type of, 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 of renewable energy issues. First thing you need to remember is that Democrats and Republicans often approach policy issues as polar opposites. And unlike in science, these opposites uh, do not always attract. And you need to remember that you're dealing with clearly, if you look at the ideological makeup, you see how they look at the energy set, they are different animals, they see the world differently. Market competition, encouraging diversification of energy sources, and energy efficient upgrades are issues that attract the polar opposites. Reliance on traditional energy sources and fossil fuels create friction between the two. So if we're talking about competition, we can talk about economies, things of that nature, we can make headways and processes in with both. One of the things you need to understand is that whereas you Republican lawmakers, and I'll use uh, Bob Steinberg, y'all are familiar with, and he's been through primaries and won on these issues, and he said that in, or in, in, in rural areas. In urban areas, it's advantageous for Republicans to run on these issues in primaries. It's a little more problematic when you get outside of that. Steinberg, the exception, not the rule. A majority of voters believe we are now seeing the effects of climate change. One out of three Republicans, two out of three unaffiliated, three out of four Democrats. Addressing climate change is more problematic for the Republicans than Democrats. However, failure to do so opens the doors for Democrats to build their issue coalition with unaffiliated voters. I have written on this a lot. I actually got to do a, a op-ed for CNN in a couple of weeks about uh, uh, waning North Carolina and emerging trends. And if you're going to win North Carolina, the issue set is all about how you build it with the unaffiliated voters. Um, you need to find issues that, that build that. Democrats and unaffiliates hold opinions that are more closely aligned in regards to those issues on climate change. Republicans, however, I didn't put the however in there, but I'll add that, they can use market competition and encouraging alternative energy solutions as key messaging points to build their issue coalition with unaffiliated voters. Um, furthermore, winning college-educated voters will become critical to building a winning coalition. Uh, the length of resident issue breaks and college-educated voter breaks provide a window in the, in the future makeup of North Carolina. Quite frankly, I will say this, if there's any Republican legislators on the, on the phone and everything else, with the changing demographic profile of this state and with the, with the drawing of new legislative maps in 2021, regardless of who draws those maps, which party draws those maps, if you cannot build a coalition with college-educated female voters, you will simply not have a majority in the state legislature. Uh, that is a reality. That's a mathematic. That's not an opinion. That's a mathematical reality of life. 
Uh, failure to open that window and address the issue set will only result in a limited success. Major metropolitan areas of the state and, and uh, uh, for state legislative candidates. Even further, Paul Shoemaker and our friend Dee Stewart from the Stewart Group went on to mention that polling indicates voters on both sides of the aisle are much more likely to support a candidate who supports policies that enable renewable energy options than they are a candidate who supports policies favoring fossil fuels. So it's safe to say that supporting clean energy is a smart political move, but also a smart economic move. Next stop, clean energy investment capital. For this webinar, we called in the big guns to tell us a little bit more about some of the latest trends in the dollars entering the clean energy markets. In particular, we are fortunate to be joined by Jigger Shaw of Generate Capital and the Energy Gang. Big shout out to our friends over at the Energy Gang. So Jigger joined us to talk a little bit more about hard to finance technologies and what's necessary to ensure capital for clean energy projects. Is that in general, there is a desire by most um, people in our industry to view everyone as rational, logical players. So that if you create some sort of rational, logical argument, then you will be able to be treated rationally and logically. And in general, I would say that that has not been true in my experience. Um, you know, we're the largest funder today of like food waste digesters, renewable natural gas, um, uh, fuel cell, you know, forklifts, like we're now getting large into regular fuel cell for power applications, EV buses. Um, in almost all of these situations, I'd say that we have no rational debt partner to play with. Um, they pretty much all basically say, Jigger, just make this a no-brainer for us. Like, I don't want to read 80 pages of due diligence. Like, just, you know, just agree to like 40% advance rate. And then over time, if we get more comfortable, we'll get up to a 70% advance rate. And that's generally how the world works um, in this space. And so when you think about where this goes eventually, there are four major components, right? One is that infrastructure investors don't want to take any technology risk, none whatsoever, right? If they do, if they are forced to take technology risk, they want it to be fully wrapped by Hanover Re or something like that. Um, so that if anything happens, then they just get paid. I think the second is that wind and solar have free fuel if, if you were in, input costs, right? So that's sort of easy to do diligence. Um, not that easy because you have to figure out the resource, but easier. Um, for like food waste digesters, you actually have to get food waste, right? For renewable natural gas, you have to get, you know, sort of like dairy manure, right? And so these kinds of things are not trivial, but they, and, and they're required to be contracted, right? So a lot of projects that we see people say, oh, don't worry about it. There's plenty of food waste around. We'll get our hands on it, right? That's generally not a good answer. You then have offtake agreements, right? In the solar and wind space that were PPAs today, they've got, you know, sort of like hedged contracts with insurance companies in the Texas market, et cetera. Um, in this market, like, you know, like sometimes the product is fertilizer, or you know, compost. Um, and those are not markets where people are usually used to doing offtake agreements. True, and it's also true for like biofuels. In general, people don't sign 10-year fixed price contracts for ethanol or biodiesel or renewable diesel, even though like, you know, they didn't used to do that in renewable energy either. And we sort of kind of told them that they had to. So, so that's the third piece. And then the fourth piece is the most overlooked, which is operational excellence. 
right? You actually need a group who has a track record of maintaining that piece of equipment for the next 20 years. Because if it's not maintained properly, well, then it's not going to generate good returns. And for instance, in the digester space, that's where everyone's falling down, right? Is that everyone brought over a beautiful technology from Italy or UK or other places that where they built 1,800 digesters. Um, but then the group here, like, immediately got shut down by EPA because they only had, you know, a storage tank for, like, 12 days of digestate. And the farmer that they were going to put land apply the digestate on their land decided that they didn't want it to happen. And then they ended up having too much digestate. And if you shut down the facility early, well, now the, the microbes die and you got a two month process to turn the facility back on. Right. And so it's one of those things where like, so those four pieces have to exist, whether we're talking about fuel cells or electric vehicle fleets or whether we're talking about, you know, activated carbon from biomass sources versus you know, coal. There's lots of sectors we can talk about, commercial energy efficiency, um, but it's generally that framework that is not yet understood by all the players. When you go to the project finance space, you have to have all four components that I asked for, which is anchored by no technology risk, right? Anytime you get money before you're able to establish no technology risk, and to be clear, when I was at BP, the definition of no technology risk meant 12 years of field data in one location. They wanted to see 100,000 hours in one location. That was the definition of no technology risk, right? So, so, the, so anything before that point really is corporate equity. Now, you could call it venture debt. You could call it private equity. You could call it growth equity. You could call it lots of things but I wouldn't call it cheap money. So there is no cheap money available until after you reach this 12 year threshold. And it's a terrible feeling for the people who work in innovation because they're like, but Jigger, I wanna be part of the party. And I was like, yeah, but there's 84 technologies that basically were invented in the 1970s after the Arab oil crisis that are ahead of you in line. And none of those technologies have gotten a billion dollar scale. So I'm focused on helping them. Right? A lot of the fuel cell technologies I'm doing, remember, came out of the premature public companies in the late 90s, right? From plug power to, to the solid oxide fuel cell basically came out of that era, which then Bloom took over. Um, but like, you know, I just think that people think that we're part of one continuum and we're not. We're on a completely different plane from venture capital. We don't actually even relate to venture capital except that we're friends in the same sector. But like we're in a completely different line of sight and risk reward. We are also joined on the webinar by Terry Vishwanath of CoBank, one of the largest institutional investors in clean energy here in the United States. Terry keyed us into some of the investments CoBank has been making in rural electric cooperatives throughout the country. All right, last stop on the clean energy train, the energy transition. So it's hard to follow up such a namesake like Jigger Shaw, but I think we pulled in the perfect person to do so as a keynote on our entire series, Amory Lovins of the Rocky Mountain Institute. Like Jigger, Amory needs little to no introduction as his contributions to the energy field have been recognized far outside the field itself. 
Did you know that Amory was named by Time in 2009 as one of the world's 100 most influential people? Just a few weeks back, we hosted Amory in a conversation with NCSEA's own Ivan Erlob to talk about the energy transition into the future. So to tee up Amory's remarks, I had asked Amory to provide our listeners with an overview of some of the most prevalent trends in the energy industry over the past 10 years, along with how those trends might dictate the direction of energy over the next 10 years. For the past, most of the past 10 years, <clears throat> I've sometimes uh, shown a slide called the eight Pac-Men of the apocalypse, showing eight Pac-Men uh, nibbling away or gobbling away at utility revenues. These are powerful disruptors converging on the electricity industry from different directions. Things like flexible demand, shifting customer preferences, distributed renewables, new financial and business models, storage, including in electric vehicles, shifts in regulation, head use efficiency, integrative design. Uh, well, and then there, there's more coming over the hill, the resilience imperative utility blockchain that could make uh, markets clear and grids balance from the bottom up, not the top down, breakthrough batteries, uh, the option to get rid of reactive power uh, and more. But let me come at this a little different way because, uh, I mean, even seven years ago, it was clear that, that these eight Pac-Men don't just add, they exponentiate. They're, they're not lone wolves, they hunt in packs. They multiply quickly. They could gobble half of utility revenues in this decade. And that together they were gonna create an alien competitive landscape faster than many utility cultures could cope. Uh, I think that has happened now uh, even six years ago, all central thermal power plants were called dinosaurs. And the full quote is too big, too inflexible, not even relevant for backup power in the long run. Who said that? Well, it wasn't Greenpeace. It was Union Bank of Switzerland. So now fast forward to now looking forward, uh, there are uh, at least eight important things that are happening more and faster uh, that really uh, accelerate all of those trends. One obviously is the context of the climate emergency. Uh, another is advances in bringing more work out of our kilowatt hours. Nine years ago in reinventing fire, we showed how to quadruple electric efficiency in the US and get it all done by 2050 at historically reasonable pace. Uh, and it would cost about a 10th the average retail tariff. Uh, well, that efficiency resource just got a lot bigger and cheaper with integrative design, designing buildings, factories, vehicles as whole systems, not as piles of parts. And if you wanna learn more about that, uh, look up an article called, How Big is the Energy Efficiency Resource? At the same time, renewable energy, particularly solar and wind, have become the cheapest bulk power source, according to Bloomberg, in 85% of the world last spring, uh, basically all of it in the next couple of years, as we go from three to two toward one cent a kilowatt hour, lowest unsubsidized solar price I've seen is 1.3 a few months ago in Portugal. And uh, that, for that reason, powerful business case, uh, renewables are taking 90% of the world market in net additions of generating capacity this year and IEA says should average 95% market share uh, over the next five years. So 
that's a pretty big revolution. And at the same time, grid integration of variable renewables has become quite cheap because there are eight carbon-free ways to do it. Bulk storage is one. It happens to be currently the most expensive. It's going to get several fold cheaper in the next few years because of advances in car batteries. But there are a lot of methods that are not bulk storage uh, and that, that are a good deal cheaper than that, but ample. For example, we showed many years ago how to run the ERCOT pool, the Texas grid, uh, on 100% renewables with no bulk storage, just by fully deploying high storage air conditioning, uh, very profitable efficiency according to the National Academies, uh, and smart uh, two-way charging of electric vehicles. Uh, at the same time, we're learning we're going to have to electrify not everything, but most things. Probably we'll do hydrogen for long-haul aviation and electrify short and medium-haul. Uh, electric process heat uh, will combine with hydrogen and, and other kinds and direct renewable process heat. Hydrogen is going to get more important because when you have two cent and below electricity, it becomes very interesting. And actually, I think it's perfectly reasonable to expect uh, that the uh, so-called harder to abate sectors, heavy transport and uh, process heat will turn out only to be differently hard, not uniquely hard. I just did a paper on this that's in your review now. Uh, but just the, the uh, rise of cheap grid integration is going to cause great distress to gas and it will be the end of thermal power. Uh, and at the same time, we'll be using strong end use efficiency, especially in things we might not think about like cooking and water heating to make it uh, quite inexpensive to get off gas in our buildings uh, as we will in industry. Uh, and I, I think the things like the 2035 report uh, out of Berkeley on how to get all carbon-free electricity in the grid by 2035 is perfectly reasonable. Uh, it may even go faster than we expect. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's easier than not doing it. And that's another part of the revolution is uh, making the generation almost as distributed as the use. That is getting real competition between resources of different scales and the control intelligence will get increasingly distributed at the same time. Uh, we won't uh, need in some decades, I think, to have dispatchers sitting in a control room telling the electrons where to go. Uh, Mr. Kirchhoff will do the, the work. Uh, and uh, we may end up with stranded grid assets just like we have stranded telco assets. Uh, the resilience imperative I think we will realize in, the, in this decade does not mean more reliance on central plants because they absolutely depend on the transmission grid. And it is in the grid that 98 or 99% of power failures originate. So that's not a very good route to resilience, even if the plants were more reliable than they are. Uh, and then the last thing I want to call to your attention, maybe we'll talk more about it, is uh, capital flight from fossil fuels uh, greatly accelerated by the pandemic. It's quite a novel and exciting story. And within a week or so, I have a paper out on that in environmental research letters.
So today we took a full round trip on our energy journey where we started with conversations around utility regulatory reform, while ending in conversation with Amory Lovins about more properly aligning the interest of utilities and energy consumers. As we've seen, the energy industry over just the past 10 years has been ripe with disruptions stemming from more efficient technologies, changing economic situations favoring renewables, and shifting consumer demands. Given these big picture changes over such a short period of time, I truly believe we're at a pivotal crossroads that will dictate how the U.S. approaches energy over the next 20, 30, or even 50 years into the future. The best part is that we have the opportunity to create an energy market that enables our utilities to continue to prosper while meeting the carbon goals of our state and ensuring that disenfranchised communities are also uplifted and able to take advantage of these new technologies. I, for one, have been incredibly inspired by the sheer number of stakeholders that have come to the table over the past year or so with a genuine interest in moving the market forward together. We still have a lot of work to do, and to be honest, we're just getting started. However, 2021 has lots of promise with lots to look forward to, so there definitely won't be a shortage of content for us to deliver on the 2021 edition of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Stay tuned and stay engaged. Well, that does it for our last episode of 2021. But wait, there's more. After weeks of hand-wringing, many listener complaints, numerous unsubscribes, we have decided to forego our new segment called Energy Dad Jokes in favor of a new segment we'd like to call Pate on the Pod, featuring our very own energy program manager at NCSEA, Daniel Pate. It's good to be on here, Matt. I'll admit that some of us here at NCSEA were kind of making bets behind your back, not thinking that you'd make it as podcast host for this long, but alas, here we are, defying all odds. And I invited you on the podcast because... Because you're going to get more subscribers. Well, on that note, let's go ahead and just jump right on into Pate on the Pod. Pate on the Pod. Clean energy. And in this new section, we'll provide you the latest updates on clean energy news in North Carolina with a little bit of a twist. And the latest EV news here in the state of North Carolina, British electric vehicle manufacturer Arrival has announced it's locating its North American headquarters here in Charlotte. Along with that announcement, we'll include 150 jobs and about $3 million of investment in the region. Yeah, definitely always a good thing to have more clean energy jobs in the state. I will note, though, while Arrival, it's a very good name for an electric vehicle firm. It's also a very apt description for us Raleigh residents on how we can describe the city of Charlotte. Uh rival wouldn't you agree oh a rival that friendly foe a very friendly rivalry yes ah daniel pate coming on strong with the first segment of pate on the pod and in other news Avangrid renewables has submitted a plan to the bureau of ocean energy management for the first 800 megawatt phase of their planned kitty hawk offshore wind project and as a little bit of insight for our squeaky clean listeners we're going to have a guest from Avangrid renewables on the podcast to talk a little bit more about this project specifically 
But super excited to hear about this news of the submission of their plans for the first phase of this project in North Carolina. Yeah, so Matt, I don't know if you read this, but I read that apparently uh, Kitty Hawk Offshore Wind expected to generate around $2 billion in economic impact between 2021 and 2030 because of this project. So I wanted to ask you, um, what do you think these local areas should do with all that extra economic impact money? I don't know, but it sounds like a whole heck of a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking they could put it in the Outer Banks. Man, they just keep on getting better and better. Better and better. Well, and Daniel Pate coming at us with two zingers for the first episode of Pate on the Pod. Now, I got uh, I got this one last one, so don't throw me off just yet. I'm going to actually read one from one of our, our longtime listeners. Um, this is from Frank Shorter. So he tweeted this one in, and he says, I got a great deal on some solar panels the other day. The installer told me that they're on the house. On that note, Daniel... Thank you for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. And I'll suppose I'll, I'll join again if, if you want me to bad enough. If you're lucky, yes. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel, M-A-T-T-A-B-E-L-E on Twitter for future episode ideas, questions for next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 40 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. That's a 4-0. So I guess that means we're over the hill now, right? We're approaching our midlife crisis. All right, so time to purchase ourselves a Tesla Roadster. Here's where I was going to insert a car engine revving sound effect. But as most of our listeners know, EVs are eerily quiet. So if you listen real close, you might be able to hear it. Okay. Before you leave, due to my bad jokes, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.